Our scripture today is taken from the gospel according to St. Mark. It is chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, and if you'd like to follow along, you can find it in the New Testament portion of your chairback Bible on page number 37. Hear now these words. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and live. So he went with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She'd endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, for she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, Who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was about 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Amen. So I have to tell you that this particular scripture is one of my very favorite in the whole Bible. Now, I know there are probably way more profound stories about Jesus and stories that are probably more wonderful, 
But to me, this, what we call Markin sandwich, a healing that is sandwiched between even a greater healing, is my favorite. The story of the hemorrhaging woman. When I was younger, you see, I read this scripture and I imagined and was inspired by the courage that I thought of, of this unshakable faith that this unnamed woman displayed. And I prayed daily that God would grant me that kind of faith, that faith that moves mountains. And I felt certain that I could avoid all suffering, you see. I could have God at my fingertips, so to speak, if I just had that kind of faith. And for many years, I continued to believe, um, sub subconsciously, obviously, that my strong faith protected me from bad things. Now, I didn't believe that Jesus loved me any more than anyone else, but, you know, I had faith. I had really strong faith. Then in 1999, a phone call came that rocked my world. My parents were in town visiting, and we had been to church on a Sunday morning. And on the way home, my cell phone rang. And it was my brother. My brother, Jim, he and his family had been vacationing down in Fort Lauderdale. And before I could get out a, hey, how are you doing? My brother said, Denise, pray. Pray. We just found Jack floating in the deep end of the swimming pool. Now, Jack was my 11-month-old nephew. Jim went on to say, they're sending care flight out here and paramedics are on their way, but please pray. Please pray. So needless to say, we pulled the car over and we began to pray mightily. And about 20 minutes later, my brother called back and he said, they've got a heartbeat and they're airlifting him, but would you all please come? So my parents and I, along with my youngest daughter, Mary Catherine, who was the same age as Jack, we flew to Fort Lauderdale to be with my brother and his family. Now I'll tell you, the entire flight there, I was praying, thank you, God. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving our sweet baby Jack. But when we got to the hospital, well, things didn't pan out that way. The doctor said that most likely Jack was brain dead, and they advised that the machines be turned off, but they did want to do a little bit more testing. But four days later, our sweet baby Jack died in the arms of his mother. Now, I will tell you, the moment I realized that Jack was probably brain dead, well, my unshakable faith was shattered. What kind of a God would do this to a helpless baby? Why? If Jesus healed the sick, like this unnamed woman, and raised the dead to life like Jairus' daughter, why would he not save our precious baby Jack? I suddenly didn't know what I believed. I didn't even know if I had faith anymore because what's it for? You know, this wasn't just a stumbling block. This was an immovable mountain in front of me. What good is faith? What's in it for any of us? 
I found myself going back to the scripture over and over, trying to see what had I missed. I felt drawn to it. Jesus, I had faith. What did I do wrong? I'll tell you. The Holy Spirit is mighty. And God comes to those who call out in desperation. I began to see this story in a different light. An entirely different way. One that took me from sort of a shallow, narcissistic faith into a deeper, more realistic faith rooted in the great love of Jesus Christ. See, the story we read today is a story of two desperate people. One is a wealthy father whose daughter is dying, and the other is a nameless woman who's suffering from some kind of uterine bleeding disorder. Now, both had heard about Jesus, and both heard about the miracles he had done, and so they think he can help them. I mean, he had already healed a leper, He had healed a paralyzed man, and he had driven the demons out of a man who was so dangerous that he was chained in a graveyard, unable to have even the most basic human contact. Both hope that this man, surely this man, has that special something that can make everything okay. They're desperate. Jairus was a leader in the synagogue, and he was an important man. Scared and worried about his daughter, he runs towards Jesus and falls at his feet, begging him, please, please come to my house. Heal my daughter. Come lay your hands on her that she may be well and live, he says. And Jesus goes with him. But something happened along the way, you see. Jesus' fame is growing, and there's a large large crowd following him, and they're crowding in on him all around him. And in the middle of this crowd, there is a woman. No name, just a woman who had suffered for 12 years with hemorrhages, we're told. 12 years. Now, in Jewish law, you got to see, she was considered unclean. This meant she probably had to have lived separately from everybody else for 12 years. She tried everything, we're told. She had spent all her money on doctors. Now, when I say doctors, this is a loose loose term here. These are probably more like magicians. She spent everything she had seeking that cure, but the text tells us that not only did it not work, it made her worse. It made her suffering worse. So this unnamed, inconsequential, ostracized woman hears that Jesus is a healer. But she thinks to herself, I don't have a chance. I can't ask him for anything. He's a very important person. He won't have time for anyone like me. So she thinks to herself, if I just get close to him, if I just can touch the hem of his robe, I think that I'll be healed. In fact, I know I'll be made well. Knowing she has nothing left to lose, she places all her hope there and she goes towards Jesus. 
and she touches his robe. Can you imagine the courage it would have taken for her to leave her home to expose herself to punishment if she were caught? All for just a hope of touching the hem of the robe of Jesus. I imagine her pushing her way through a crowd. She probably had to crawl and stretch to reach the hem of his robe. And when she touches it, she knows immediately that she's healed. Immediately. She must have been ecstatic. But you know, she's missed nobody. She's got to get out of here. She's got to get out of here before she's caught. But before she can get away, Jesus stops and he looks around. We're told that he felt the power go from him. Who touched me, he said. Well, the disciples, you know, they're on a mission here. They have a very important thing to do, get Jesus to the home of this important man. And they look at him and they said, what do you mean who touched you? Do you see this huge crowd? Come on, Jesus, we got better things to do. Let's go. But Jesus doesn't give up. He looks around and he's searching for the woman or searching for the person until the woman, it says, came in fear and trembling and falls down at his feet. And then it says an interesting thing. She told him the whole truth. The whole truth. Just imagine that for a moment. Not only is she a nobody, but now she's having to tell all about this incredibly personal and embarrassing problem in public in front of everyone. See, she could have run. She could have hidden in the crowd because of a lot of people there, but she doesn't. She's healed. Why stick around? And as I read this text over and over, I thought to myself, why? Why would she humiliate herself in front of everybody? See, something else must have happened here. Something beyond the obvious healing. Something powerful, something extraordinary. Something changed this woman's life. And then Jesus says to her, listen to this, daughter, daughter, he says, this is a nobody. This is a nobody, a woman that according to Jewish law had just defiled Jesus by touching him. Yet he looks at her and calls her daughter. And by the way, this is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus ever uses this term, daughter. See, the word in Greek tells us so much more than even the word in English because it means more like, you are now a member of my family. You who are of no consequence to anybody in this world, well, guess what? You are of extreme consequence to me. You're precious. You might have been a nobody before, but now you are a somebody. Then Jesus says to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Listen to that again. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Well, if her faith made her well, why is she then healed of her disease? See, if we look at it more closely, the Greek word we translate as 
has made you well means something more than that. It means more like has ensured your salvation. Her reaching out to Jesus in faith has ensured her salvation and then go in peace and be healed of your disease. And see, just like that, I, I think I understood. See, I think that when this woman was healed, she received much more than earthly healing. What she received was eternal healing. See, she knew when she touched the robe of Jesus that something miraculous happened in her body, but I think something way more miraculous happened in her soul. And then when she looks into Jesus' face and he lovingly says, Daughter, she realizes that in Christ she is made whole. She knows without a shadow of a doubt that she is loved and nothing can take that love away from her ever. See, I think what she received was hope. Hope. Hope is a word we misuse a lot and we often confuse it with dreams. I hope I can become a famous singer. I hope I can pitch a perfect baseball game. I hope I get into the college of my choice on a full ride. I hope my children never disappoint me. But you see, these are dreams, not hope. My favorite hope, I hope I win the lottery. But that's an unrealistic dream, not a hope. See, hope we often mix up with things we want. What will make us happy? But that's not biblical hope. It's just a temporary diversion you see from reality, as Philip Yancey says. It's filling a hole inside of us that's scared to death of hopelessness. What if I end up with nothing? What if the rest of my life is just the same as it is right now? Or worse? But you see, biblical hope is different. Biblical hope doesn't depend on the temporal. It's hope is the faith in the future. Let me say that again. It doesn't depend on the temporal. Hope is faith in the future. It's defined as confident expectation. It's not a wish or a dream or something that might be someday. No, it's a secure trust and expectation that we're meant for something more. We have a future, and although we can't see it right now, we know, we know it's there, and we know it's coming. The Greek word is elpis, to expect or anticipate with pleasure, and it's centered on the loving promise of eternal life, you see, that starts right now with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The day that Jack died... My parents and I went to the hospital room early to see if we could relieve my brother because he had been up all night with him. When we got there, we were a little surprised to see him sitting in a rocking chair, rocking Jack and looking peaceful. That was the last thing we expected, peace. And he looked up at us and he said, it's going to be okay. Last night when I was holding Jack, I was praying and God told me, it's okay, you can let Jack go. I've got him. Jim said, see, God has him. God's holding him. And everything's going to be okay. 
And later that day, he and his wife made the decision to take Jack off life support. And all of us then, the entire family, including kids and even some nurses and doctors, all stood around the bed and we held hands and we sang, Jesus loves me. We sang it softly at first and then louder with more and more confidence because we all realized, you see, we had been given a miracle. It's just not what we had prayed for. We had been given the miracle of hope. Hope. You see, Jean Kerr called this kind of hope, the knowledge you have that the feeling you have right now isn't permanent. The knowledge you have that the feeling you have right now is not permanent. See, hope does not deny the present darkness, but it reminds us that dawn, dawn is coming. This is hope that doesn't hide from reality, but instead confronts reality head on. It's hope you see that is anchored in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ through whom we are given certainty that no matter what happens, no matter what happens in our lives, we're going to be okay. Because you see, this is eternal hope. And it frees us to live life differently, to pursue things, to live courageously, and to follow faithfully. We can't be defeated when we have this kind of hope. For through faith we have been given the grace to see that the same Jesus Christ who healed the woman with hemorrhaging, the same Jesus Christ who said to Letha Kum, little girl, get up. That same Jesus Christ is still at work in the world today. He's building and rebuilding the broken, the lost, and the hopeless. Now! Can you see it all around you? Hope shapes the way we see everything you see, how we deal with everything, how we live. Write these words down, says Jesus in Revelation 21.5, for they are trustworthy and true. Behold. Behold, I am making all things new. Not made, not will make. I am making all things new. Every day, including me, including you. Can you see it? Can you see it? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.